When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The New Statesman. I'm Ida Vok, Europe correspondent in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin, senior editor, U.S. in Washington, D.C. It's Thursday, the 27th of October. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. The far right and far left in France failed to bring down the government in a no-confidence motion, but came closer than expected. What does it mean for French politics and for President Emmanuel Macron? And why did the Congressional Progressive Caucus in the United States send and retract a letter on Ukraine? We will also take a question on Ukraine's request to identify Russia as a terrorist state. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. All right. If you are a regular listener to this podcast, maybe you will have noticed that we did not have clips at the start there. We're a day late and a dollar or a pound short. So we we hope that you will forgive us for that. Housekeeping notes. My pop-up podcast, Nationalism Reimagined, is out now. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. We are halfway through. The second episode, which is on Hungary, came out this week. Our next episode will be on India. That will be out Tuesday. So please do catch up and tune in on Tuesday. Also, the Chinese Communist Party conference recently wrapped up. Should you want to better understand the context for it, we encourage you to go back and listen to our colleague Katie's podcast on Xi Jinping. With that, we are going to get into it. It's just Ito and me, and we have a lot to get through. So here we go. On Monday night, the French far right and far left voted against the government, no confidence vote, but did not succeed in bringing down Prime Minister Elizabeth Bourne. Elizabeth, I'm sorry for pronouncing your name like that. Still, they came within 50 votes. Macron and Bourne, meanwhile, have used emergency provisions to force a first reading of the 2023 budget. Ido, backing up a little bit, why did they force this? Why did they try to bring down the government? The reason that there were a couple of no confidence motions placed in the government, which we should note is is the government of the prime minister, not of the president who has his own separate mandate, but the government of the prime minister depends on holding the confidence of parliament. The reason that was brought against the government is because the government used a quite contentious measure which it is empowered to do under the French constitution, which is called Article 49.3 of the constitution which allows the government to pass bills without a vote in exchange for 
subjecting itself to a confidence motion, which can be presented in the hours after the vote. So basically, if the government isn't sure that it has the votes to pass a particular bill, it can pass the bill without a vote. Obviously, this is hugely empowering to the executive and regularly is decried as pretty anti-democratic by opposition parties, but it's something that, that has been used. It's a provision in the constitution which is a holdout from when Charles de Gaulle drafted the constitution and gave the executive quite a lot of powers, probably more than they have in most Western democracies. And because Macron's party lost its majority in parliament, had to face a, face a parliament which is more fractitious and less acquiescent to the executive than French presidents had been used to because they, for the previous 20 years, up until the last set of elections, their party had always gained a majority in parliament and therefore parliament was not too much of a block on their, on their political programme. But that has now changed because Macron no longer has a majority in parliament. Yeah. So, is it fair to say that although that on the one hand, these emergency provisions and the fact that they're able to use them show how empowered the French presidency is, but by the same token, the fact that they need to use them show that this particular French president is not particularly empowered? Is that a fair assessment? That's a really good way of putting it. So there are two things, right? There's the kind of formal powers that the president has under the constitution, including these pretty, let's be honest, authoritarian measures which allow the president essentially to rule by diktat. And then there's the political reality, which is that having to use these powers is an illustration of political weakness. It's an illustration of political weakness because Macron doesn't have a majority because he lost his majority in parliament because in a result that was interpreted by, by lots of French people as suggesting that voters wanted France to have a political culture which is more based around compromise, around building alliances between parties and not just a kind of compliant legislature, just basically doing more or less the bidding of the president, which is obviously the norm in lots of other European countries. Yes, it's, it shows the kind of political weakness of the president and the various means that he has floated to try and overcome this deadlock because we're only a few months into his second term. We're only a few months into this legislature. And typically, if you think about what happens over the course of a legislature, typically it becomes harder to form majorities, not easier for the incumbent government. So this is clearly a problem that is going to last over the long term. And so Macron has floated various possibilities to try and resolve this deadlock in kind of anticipation of eventual problems. So there are two strands to the solutions that he's floated. The first strand are options which aim to marginalise Parliament. So he's threatened, for example, to dissolve the National Assembly if the government were to be defeated in a confidence motion and thus go to new elections. And he's also raised the possibility of, of calling referendums to basically bypass parliamentary deadlock and essentially have some direct democracy and have a kind of mandate from the people that cannot be thwarted by parliament. And then he's also floated his desire to form an alliance with a smaller centre-right party called the Republicans and also another centrist faction, which would give him a majority in parliament and thus have some kind of ruling coalition, essentially, which is obviously a novelty in French politics, but not necessarily too unusual in terms of other European countries. And that would obviously be a step in the direction of the parliamentarianism that lots of French people say they want and that the elections, the legislative elections earlier this year seem to indicate lots of French people desire. We also mentioned that there was this confidence motion that came within 50 votes of passing. I guess, what does this all mean for parliament and for the president? 
So when a government invokes Article 49.3, it has to open itself up to the possibility of a confidence vote, a vote of non-confidence in the government that can be proposed by opposition parties in the day after the vote. And if it loses that confidence vote, first of all, the 49.3 is not valid, so the bill doesn't pass. And second of all, the government falls and someone else has to try and form a majority and if that fails perhaps go to new elections and so in this occasion there were two confidence motions so the first one was proposed by Marine Le Pen's uh, far-right party called the Rassemblement, Rassemblement National and there was another one proposed by the NUP which is an alliance of left-wing parties and although both alliances, both groupings had initially said that they wouldn't vote for each other's confidence motion. Marine Le Pen pulled off a kind of uh, political coup by announcing in the debate on the new confidence motion that her faction, so the far right, would vote for the left-wing alliance's confidence motion. That meant that the left-wing alliance's confidence motion gained 239 votes, which is just 50 short of a majority of 289. And this, the support of the RN and this kind of political coup was viewed as a bit of a trap for the Republicans because for the centre-right Republican Party, which has 62 MPs, so enough in theory to pass this confidence motion and topple the government because Le Pen was basically showing voters on the hard right, the kind of voters who might waver between the Republicans and her party, that the centre-right is guaranteeing Macron's political survival by refusing to topple his government when they had the chance. So it, it signals to voters, to voters on the hard right, that perhaps if they're really opposed to Macron and they and they would like Macron's government to fall, then perhaps they should vote for the Rassemblement National and not for the Republicans, which she said show that uh, have now been shown to be closer to the government than the opposition. So it was a kind of it was a bit of political theatre, but one that lots of people see, lots of observers that I've read see as having been quite effective, really. And it shows how Le Pen is working in Parliament now that she has the biggest group of hard-right MPs in, in post-war history, certainly. Well, we will continue to follow this, both on newstatesman.com and also here on this podcast. But for now, we are moving from Parliament to Congress. This week, congressional progressives sent a letter to the Biden administration that essentially reiterated the administration's Ukraine policy, but also urged diplomacy with Russia. After receiving pushback, why was this letter so muddled? Why were they sending it now, two weeks before the midterms and with the war as it is in Ukraine? The letter was retracted. It turned out the letter had been drafted in July, but the whole brouhaha raised wider questions about how long Biden will have support for his policy in Ukraine. Obviously, that's like a lot of inside congressional baseball. My first reactions to this were progressives have so little power in foreign policy that as a person who thinks it's really important that progressives do carve out space and take up space in American foreign policy, this was really disappointing to see. This was a series of unforced errors. The fact that after, as was retracted, they tried to blame staff and, and it was just like, this is not how progressives should be spending their limited power on foreign policy by messing up letters. Secondly, I think the people who were like, this is abandoning Ukraine were ridiculous. That's not what the letter said. It basically reiterated administration policy, um, raising the question of who it was for and why it was sent. But on the left, there were some people who were, well, we can't even talk about diplomacy. Okay, here's the thing. I agree that this letter or that calls for diplomacy are not the same thing as Kevin McCarthy saying, who is the House, the top Republican in the House, should Democrats lose the House in the midterms, which they are expected to. He said, well, we might not. We'll have to look at this 
blank check for Ukraine, which is seen as a wink, wink, nudge, nudge to the Trump wing of the Republican foreign policy, or the, or the Trump wing of the Republican Party and their foreign policy stance. So this was not the same thing as that. That said, I find it very frustrating that people say, why can't we talk about diplomacy? One, as though diplomacy is not currently ongoing. And two, as though we live in a world where the other interlocutor in these negotiations is a good faith, honest practitioner which, with whom you have simple differences of agreement, of opinion. There were negotiations leading up to this war. Putin, who has a completely different, not just worldview, like understands Ukraine differently, i.e. not as a sovereign nation, but as a sovereign country, invaded anyway. He still maintains that position on Ukraine. So when you say diplomacy, what are you talking about? Are you saying that they should, uh, especially if, the, if you're saying, as this letter did, well, we need to take Ukraine's sovereignty into account. Okay, these two things are at direct odds because you're talking about negotiating with somebody who does not believe it should be sovereign and who has said, okay, well, we can end the war when it's denazified, which it's like, how do you denazify something that's not, I don't even, what, what, what's the parlance in that case, nazified in the first place? I think it is very important for, especially for progressive, when they make these calls to be really specific. Do you mean that you need to have more oversight in terms of the military aid that's being sent to Ukraine? Do you mean that you want to oppose certain measures that would lead to escalation, like the no-fly zone, which, by the way, the administration did oppose? Do you mean that you think there should be, I don't know, you want to reopen consular services to different consular offices that have been closed here in the United States to allow more communication with Russia on different levels? Because just calling for diplomacy, to me, is a cop-out. If you mean, actually, we think this is too much money and it's too much risk and we don't want to support Ukrainian sovereignty, then you should just say that and have the courage of your convictions, and we can have a conversation on those terms. We were talking about this a few days ago, Emily, and one of the points that we raised was that when people say that we need negotiations and that um, there need to be negotiations to end the war, it's cipher for we need to offer less support to Ukraine, right? Because if there are going to be genuine negotiations between Russia and Ukraine, Ukraine will have the best position it can if it has the more support it has and the better its position on the battlefield. No, I completely agree. And to be clear, I'm not suggesting that's what this letter was doing. And there have been some members who explained, well, it was in the Soviet summer, there were nuclear threats, and that's why we dropped it. Fine, sure. But I do think there are some people who are using it as a sort of code. And that's really, it's, it's profoundly disingenuous. I also think that there, there's a certain line of argument that you can hear developing now that sort of goes, well, I don't think that we need to, that we should be doing this. But at a certain point, the American people are going to demand that we give less money to, to Ukraine. And that may be true. You know, I don't know what this new Congress is going to look like. I suspect that it will, strongly suspect that it will have more Republicans who are less supportive of Ukraine. And I mean, if Trump comes back in 2024, I think this is all going to look very extremely different for Ukraine and also for a host of other issues. And so there is a sense that the longer this goes on, the less political support there is in the United States. Having said all of that, that in and of itself is not a reason now. And in fact, it wouldn't be a reason ever, like a good reason, in my opinion, ever to say, well, all right, time to forget the last however many months. It's time to give Ukraine to Putin. After all, he was right. I think especially, I guess something that frustrates me is that we've seen as this war has gone on, that the Russian regime has continued to lie, to misrepresent what Ukraine is, and also to commit horrible acts against Ukrainian civilians. 
And so the idea that the negotiating with this particular crop is somehow the considerate thing to do for Ukrainian lives, when those Ukrainians themselves are saying, please continue to support us, I think is a, an argument made not entirely in good faith. We will obviously continue to watch the U.S. policy toward Ukraine and all of its various manifestations and forms. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including the historian Colin Kidd on Watergate's renewed relevance in a post-Trump era. Today's obsessions about a deep state took their rise in the 70s amid this climate of anxiety. Jeff Dyer's reflections on how to grow old in America. He was propped up in bed, proudly sporting a badge. Private medicine makes me sick. Maria Vilcek tells the story of how the hard men of Belarusian football took on Alexander Lukashenko. Hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Now we are going to move to a section that we like to call You Ask Us. Our question this week comes from Michal in Poland. 
Ukraine's big request lately, he writes, has been for the West to identify Russia as a terrorist state. What would that mean and what might push the EU slash NATO to make that decision? All the best from Poland. Michal. Thank you so much for the question. I have one sort of impression as an answer, but I'm going to let Ido do the bulk of the work. So Ido, take it away. I think this would be primarily a political decision. And I think you can probably see that in terms of the countries that have already taken the decision to designate Russia as a terrorist state or state sponsor of terrorism on a national level in these countries like Estonia, which obviously are among the most hawkish of the Western alliance. So Russia being designated a terrorist state would obviously be a further indication that Russia is a global pariah and that it's one of very few countries which is not a kind of responsible part of the international system. But it would also have some concrete effects. So for example, if Russia were to be deemed a a terrorist state or a state sponsor of terror, something called the Financial Action Task Force, which is a global money laundering and terrorism financing watchdog set up at the G7, includes 37 member states. And it forces all states which are members to apply enhanced due diligence to any transactions involving the financial system of a jurisdiction which has been blacklisted by the FATF, which is the case of, for example, North Korea and Iran. And so, for example, it would be it would be harder to so it would be harder to, for example, for Russia's existing unsanctioned banks to do business, which is there are still dozens of banks which haven't been sanctioned, although some have sanctioned. And it would make it harder to circumvent sanctions by the countries which have not sanctions against Russia. So I think it's a kind of political decision and it's also it would also have limited real world effects. I don't really think that this would be the, the kind of make or break decision as to whether sanctions crush the Russian economy or not. There are frankly other decisions which are much more significant in in those terms, most of which have already been taken by the West and many of which haven't been taken by other countries. India is buying lots of Russian oil, for example. China is continuing to trade to trade with Russia. But this decision would would make a bit of a difference. I agree on the point that the I understand why it's being called for. I think the reality is that real world impact, as you say, would be limited. It reminds me, and there have been various points where there, there's been like the chorus has cried. And I hope this doesn't come off as condescending, but it's like, we just need to kick them off swift, or I don't know, we, we just need to do this one next thing. And I think the reality is that there's no one lever that can be pulled that will, will make this stop, unfortunately. We hope that was helpful. Thank you so much for your question. And thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. Listeners, you can send yours in at newstatesman.com slash you ask us. That is right. We have the form. Super easy, newstatesman.com slash you ask us, or as always, you can tweet at us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday for our interview episode with Yang Zhonghuang on the outlook for China's zero COVID policy. If you are a regular World Review listener and you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. And if you've already subscribed, thank you. Please also rate us five stars and leave us a good review. It really does help. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thank you so much for listening and until next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.